You can turn with me to Genesis chapter 22 for our worship Bible lesson today. And at some point in the presence of the Lord, God spoke to Abraham. And he tested him in verse 1 and said to him, Abraham. And Abraham said, Here I am, Lord. And he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac his son, took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And the two of them went together. And they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar, placed the wood in order. He bound Isaac his son, laid him on the altar and upon the wood, and stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram, offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son, and he called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of Yahweh it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called out to Abraham a second time and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. In blessing I will bless you. In multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of your enemies. And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. I'd like to speak to you for a few minutes on the subject of the blessedness of nothingness. The blessedness of nothingness. Nothingness is the state in which nothing you have is more important than God. It is a state of being in which life whether it is the Heavenly Father's gifts of money to you or a relationship or a wife or a children. Nothing is more important than God. Jim Elliott, the martyred missionary, put it this way. He said, if there's anything you own which you're not willing to give up, you don't own it. It owns you. 
One of the purposes of learning to give is to learn that nothing we have is outside the bounds of sacrifice. And when you come to that place, you have reached the blessedness of nothingness. It's a terrible thing to be in bondage to a relationship, to be in bondage to a car, or in bondage to a money, or in bondage to a job, or in bondage to a house, or in bondage to a credit card. Oh, the blessedness of nothingness. It is the tyranny of things that might be called thingolatry, the worship of things. Shirley and I were teaching the word on the Bible study cruise to the Caribbean this week, along with Charles Stanley and Jim Henry and Adrian Rogers and Jerry Vines and Kay Arthur. One day we had a chance to take the tender over to the... Um, over to the uh, little island called Salt Key. And uh, you know how I love the water and the Caribbean water. And, and uh, over on the island, they always have a barbecue, spare ribs, hot dogs, hamburgers. Somehow a hamburger always tastes better with a little sand mixed with a relish and the ketchup. Amen. And always tastes just a little bit butter. And the drinks are always just a little bit colder when you're in the sun on a Caribbean island. And on top of the tender, you can picture me in my bathing suit with a pair of tennis shoes and a pair of white sweat socks and uh, a Coca-Cola t-shirt, a gift from Daryl Brown, my Coca-Cola t-shirt, even though Daryl's not in the services. I love to sneak a Pepsi now and then. But uh, there I am on top of the tender and... Uh, uh, I'm sitting down and a young pastor introduces himself to me from the Ashland Avenue Baptist Church in Lexington, Kentucky. He and his wife are there. We strike up a conversation. And in the middle of this conversation, absolutely nothing related to my socks, my wife looks at me and says, you've got on my socks. <laughs> I said, I do not have on your socks. She said, I just bought a pair of slouch socks. And I never heard of slouch socks. Anybody here ever hear of slouch socks? A slouch is somebody who won't work. I never heard of slouch socks. But I understand now, I know, you put them on and then you push them way down, bunch them up. Well, I know that uh, these were my socks because I got them out of a white plastic back, uh, uh, a basket which sits on my shelf and they were at the bottom and she would never put her socks on the bottom of that basket and I had pushed them down because uh, I knew they were mine. She said to me, those are my socks. I said, they're not your socks, they're my socks. She said, I just bought those because they're slouch socks. I said, they're not, not slouch socks. I never heard of slouch socks. And uh, I'm not a slouch wearing socks. She said, well, why are they down? Because I said, I've been walking and they've fallen down. She said, they look like slouch socks. Pull them up. I said, I'm not pulling them up. You pull those socks up to the knee. They make you look like a nerd. <laughs> well, the pastor got a charge out of that. And the next morning, delivered to my door was this pair of peach slouch socks. <laughs> See, it says slouch right there, slouch. 
fit sizes two to 106. <laughs> there they were. And this note from the pastor, which said, Dr. Quartz, I thought it a shame that you and your wife either had to share socks <laughs> or argue over whose they are. So I thought, I thought I might solve both problems at once. These will be distinctively yours. And please notice they are slouch socks so you don't have to play the nerd. <laughs> then he added, it was a joy to meet you. I hope that, to meet you to get much better acquainted in the future. I'm sure after my wife and I arguing over slouch socks, may God bless you and your socks. I mean, your fields of labor thrive with fruit. Herschel York. Things, what they do to us. Who could care? I wouldn't care if they were mine and she had them on, were you? Would you? Slouch socks. I thought I might wear these this morning, but that would be too much of a shock. I've tried to imagine some situation, Brother Larry, in which I might wear them. I haven't figured one out yet. But someday, if you ever see these on my wife, pushed way down around her ankles, you'll know these are slouch socks from the Caribbean because she and I got in a little discussion over whose were the things. Sometimes that happens. Who owns the things? Whose are the things? They divide families, things do. They divide husband and wife, things can. A parent can die and the family can be in harmony until they divide the things. All the blessedness of nothingness. I love this story of Abraham. It is not just a lesson on obedience. More important even than learning obedience, it is a lesson on getting rid of the things that you really love more than you love God. It is a lesson on letting go of the Isaacs in your life which mean more to you than the Lord himself. It is a lesson that requires self-examination to see if there's a man or a woman or a child or a bank account or a piece of property or a house or something which you're unwilling to put on the altar to God. That's what this is about. It is about how rich Abraham was when he had given up the very dearest thing on earth, his son, when he was old enough to be a great-grandfather and still wondering when the promise would be fulfilled. God gave him a son, and that son was so valuable to him. In that son began to rest love and his trust and his hopes because this was a child from the Lord. And in that son rested all of his reverence. That was a child of promise and he was justified in feeling that way about that son. And then one day in a quiet moment when God was speaking to him, God said, Abraham, I want you to do something. I want you to notice four things that comprise the test of nothingness, and I want you to give yourself that test today, would you? The test 
of nothingness. First, verse 2. Take now your son, your only son. Take now the son whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. What's the most valuable thing you have today? And what would you do if God said, walk forward in that church and lay it all on that altar and say, here it is, God, I give it to you. What is there that you would be reluctant to give up because you love it so much? You see, the first test of nothingness is this test. Is there anything you are loving more than you love God? Is it a child or a wife or a husband? You say, that's not possible. Oh, yes, it is. Jesus said, whosoever loves father and mother, husband or wife, brother or sister, son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Come to terms with that object of your love. You say, surely God wouldn't see that. Oh, yeah. I love a child more than may take that child. He may in the quiet moment ask you to give it. And if you don't give it, he may take it in order to teach you the blessedness of nothingness. Is there anything you're loving more than you love God? Achan let money come between him and God. And there was a defeat on all of the armies of Joshua. Do you remember? It was true of Balaam, who let money come between him and the light of God. And for money, he was going to trick the people of God. And God arrested him with a donkey. There was Delilah, who let money come between her and her love for Samson. And she sold out Samson's secret to the Philistines. It was money that came between Gehazi and God, the servant of Elisha. And when Naaman had been healed and Elisha wouldn't take anything, he rushed after him and lied to Naaman and said, give me money. If the prophet won't have it, I'll take it. And he betrayed his master and his God. It was Ananias and Sapphira who for money lied to the Holy Spirit and lost their lives. Oh, the blessedness of nothingness is coming to the place where there is absolutely nothing and no one that you love more than God. That's a test of nothingness. But that is not all. Is there anything you're trusting in Abraham more than God? For nothingness is coming to the place where you are trusting nothing more than you are trusting God. Now watch what God said in verse 8. When Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, and the two of them went together, I believe somehow between the sunset and the gray dawn of the morning, 
in that long night when he looked at that son that he loved and he realized that he had deposited his trust in God's capacity to keep his promise in that son, he somehow came to terms that if God could give him that son once, God could raise that son from the dead. According to the book of Hebrews, that's what we read in chapter 11. He decided to give his son because he knew that he had to transfer his trust from that boy Isaac to reproduce his seed to God because his trust had been placed in Isaac. Has your trust been placed in a retirement program or a business or a large multinational company or a stock or a woman or a man? Nothingness is coming to the place where you are trusting absolutely nothing more than God. And the reason I think Abraham came to that place is because when it was all over and Abraham possessed nothing, he'd been willing to give up the one thing he loved and trusted, Isaac. He was richer than before. He still had his flocks. He still had his herds. He still had his wife. He still had his family. He still had his servants. He still had his silver. And he still had his gold. But nothing came between him and God. Now that's the blessedness of nothingness. I love the story of the salesman. Anxious about his job. Worried about his production who walked into an office to make a sale. When he was ready to make a quote to his customer, he uh, glanced down on the desk and noticed that a quote from a competitor was sitting on the desk of his client. The man said, excuse me for a moment. I've got to take care of something and walked out of his office. The salesman looked around saw nobody watching, nobody looking, and thought, now I can sneak a look at my competitor's quote, and I'll be able to beat it and get the business. But he looked down on that quote, and there was a Coca-Cola cup sitting right on top of the actual figure. He reached down and lifted up that Coca-Cola cup and it was full of BBs which ran all over the desk and the office. And as he was on his knees, futilely trying to scrape up the BBs, his client walked back into the room and said, get out of my office. You have no integrity. I wouldn't do business with you no matter what the quote was. Grasping at something, trusting in anything other than God, that's the test of nothingness. But look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, here I am. Don't lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. Verse 13, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, 
and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And God had given him a replacement. I think Abraham's hope for the future, for the seed, was in Isaac. You know, God had promised, I'm going to bless you. And Abraham had placed his hope in that son. Now, watch how we rationalize. But Lord, you gave me that son. It's all right for my hope. To oh, no, 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 no. You know, the test of nothingness is even if God gave you that house, if you lost it tomorrow, your hope for your older years is in God, not that house. It's in God, not that retirement program. Your hope for getting through college is in God, not in that fund that your great aunt left for you, which has now been reduced by reduction in the stocks. Your hope for your health is in God, not in some doctor, not in some HMO. You know, we Christians rationalize and say, but God gave this to me. This is the way God's going to do it. Yeah, but if you let that come between you and God, watch it. You may lose it. He may ask you for it. It is a test of nothingness. Your hope must not be in Isaac, Abraham. It must be in God. You and I have to come to that realization, and that was the test. Somehow he had come to the to, the, to, the, to trust that God would himself provide a substitute for Isaac. Ladies and gentlemen, what a gorgeous picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's a fourth thing that we must see. In verse 12 then, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him for now I know that you fear God. Underline that. The test of nothingness is this. Is there anything you fear or reverence more than you reverence God? That's the test. I believe from that day on, my, my, and mine were removed from Abraham's vocabulary forever. Because there was nothing he had that had not come from the Lord, and so nothing that God did not have the right to take back. You know that covetousness is idolatry. Why? Because things can become the repository of our love, our trust, our hope, and our fear, our awe. What one thing would cause you, the loss of which would cause you more panic than anything else? What if you went out in the parking lot this morning and your, your new Lincoln was stolen? Or your new Chevy was gone? Most of you would say, too bad, but I've got insurance. You see, what we have done, we have put a net between ourselves so that there's almost nothing we have that can't somehow be covered because we want to make sure we don't want to have to fear a loss. Sometimes that's the test of nothingness. We're afraid to give up. A loved one, a relationship that may be negative, a job that is the repository, the place where we put our trust. Sometimes we fear for our own safety. How would I get along if I did not have this? I'll tell you quite well, as long as you have God, quite well, please, you will get along. It's the test of nothingness. And God said, now I know you fear God. 
because you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Because if you had given it up, I would have known you loved me and me alone. You trusted in me and me alone. You hoped in me and me alone. You feared nothing but me and reverenced nothing but me. Now, how do we arrive at the point of the blessedness of nothingness? How do we get there? See, that's one of the reasons for regular giving. Regular giving disciplines our greed. Regular giving disciplines the old nature. Regular giving keeps us from loving something so much we put all of our trust in that. That's why we give regularly. If you, listen, I hear this all the time. If you cannot suddenly start tithing 10%, I would challenge every member of this church this week, as you pray about what God would have you commit to the Lord, to give to God through the ministry of this church in 1995, I challenge you, try giving any proportionate amount on a regular basis. Try 2%. Try 4%. Make some regular commitment. But learn to give regularly, every week, every month, in some way to bring discipline into your life and to say to God, there is nothing I have I am not willing to give up for you. I'm not going to put anything before you. That's the reason we give regularly. You know, we got over, over uh, 500 member families in this church that did not give a single dollar bill to the Lord last year through this ministry. Not a single dollar bill. There are another 600 families probably, uh, the last we checked, who, who gave less than $5 a week to the Lord. Just kind of a token offering, Lord, here as I pass by. Ten bucks for lunch, but five bucks for God. But it is the discipline of giving regularly that keeps us on the fine edge of nothingness. John D. Rockefeller was 55 years old. His health was broken. The man who started the Standard Oil Company from which came Exxon, Esso and Exxon... Which, from which came billions of dollars generated for his family. That man was 55. When he was sick, he could only eat a cracker and drink a half a glass of milk at a time. He was unhappy. His health was broken. The doctors gave him a very poor prognosis. There's no way you're going to live long. And at age 55, lying in a sick bed, unable to eat a complete meal, yet having the money to buy anything he wanted, God showed him how to be blessed with nothingness. And it was to learn the principle of Christian giving. And at age 55, John Rockefeller began giving away everything he had. It is out of that beneficence that came the Rockefeller Foundation. And John D. Rockefeller lived another 35 years till age 90 because he learned to give. And that's the way you get to the place of the blessedness of nothingness. Well, you say, is that biblical? Yeah, it sure is. Turn to Luke. Let's go to the New Testament now and find the answer. This is where Abraham wound up. It's in Luke chapter uh, 6 and verse 38. And here it is. This is the way you achieve nothingness. Chapter 6, verse 38. Give and it will be given to you. 
good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. There it is. <laughs> That's the way you, you come to the state of the blessedness of nothingness, by giving. If there's anything you have that you're not willing to, to give away to God, then come on back to Luke 6:38 and see what Jesus is saying. The Dead Sea lies 1,287 feet below sea level. Everything flows into it, but there is no outlet. It is rich in minerals. It is rich in all kinds of trace elements, but it does nothing any good because it gives nothing, and that's why nothing can live in the Dead Sea. Nothing, no fish. I've been swimming in the Dead Sea. Nothing exists in the Dead Sea because it only receives and it never gives. And John D. Rockefeller had come to that place when he was 55 years of age. He had never learned that what God gave him was not to be harbored up in the Dead Sea. The job God gave you is not to be coveted. The children the Lord gives you are not to be to become your idols. Podolatry is sin like idolatry, the worship of children. Sometimes I get worried about you 30-somethings. You worship your children so much, you almost put them before God. Well, I can't do this. You better not do that. Watch out. Because those children don't belong to you. They have only been loaned to you by the Lord for a time. Amen, grandparents, all of you who've raised children? They've only been loaned to you. And you are a steward of those children, not the possessor. God is the possessor. Now let's look at this verse. First, this discipline of regular giving, which brings us to the blessedness of nothingness, has a command. Give is the command. Do you know that that is a plural command, all of you? It is an imperative. It is not an option. Jesus is saying, this is what the Christian life is all about. Everybody is to give. And it is in the durative tense, the continuous tense. It is to give and give and keep on giving. Be giving continually. As a command is the call of Christ in this. And secondly, there is a promise. It shall be given to you. What a promise. You know... Your life is like a cup. If you don't give it away, you don't have room for anything else. It's like a sponge. If you don't give and squeeze a little of the water out of that sponge, you don't have any capacity to receive anymore. Most of us get filled up with our capacity to receive at the point we're able to keep something between us and God or remove it between us and God. And when we get to the place where something comes between us and God, there's no more capacity to receive until we give. Give and it shall be given you. That's a promise. In nature, we see it all around us. The tree gives the leaves and fertilizes the earth around. The earth carries seed and nutrients. The sun is constantly giving. Seed carries life. There is human need all around. Give and it shall be given unto you. And the picture is that of a, a, a 
a Mideast man with an inner robe and then an outer robe, and the outer robe is flowing. And if he wanted to stop to buy uh, a half a bushel of grain, there wouldn't be a plastic bag with a, an advertisement on the side in which he could carry home his grain. He would just take his lap, the bosom, the flowing front part of his robe, and he would have that filled up with grain, and then he would twist it in front of him to the side and carry it home. And now the picture becomes vivid when there are four characteristics of how you will receive. Did you see them? It will be good measure. It will be pressed down. It will be shaken together. It will be running over into your bosom when you learn to give. Some people say there's absolutely no way I can give. My budget will not allow me to give a thing. Try it. Try God. Try God. In fact, I challenge you, as you pray about this week, what you will sign as a commitment to the Lord next, over the next two weeks, we're going to ask you to do that. I want you to pray about it. I'll tell you what, if, you, if anybody in this church will try tithing for three months, just three months, and God does not return to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, I will personally refund your money. Ken Clegg and I will, right, Ken? We'll do it. Amen. <laughs> Is that all right, Martha? We will give you back. If you, you try God, you try God for three months, and if it's not running over, come and see me. I'll give it back. How's that for a money-back guarantee? Amen. You hardly get that at Walmart. But there it is. Given it shall be given. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. And then here's the principle. The principle is with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Have you ever thought that the reason all you've got to give is tied up because of giving so very little? Because God always returns in proportion. Now, now, that's not the motive for giving. It's like the man that got the letter from the TV preacher and it said, uh, the Lord's told me that if you'll send me $1,000, he'll give you $10,000. i am in desperate need. God wants to meet my need through you. And he wrote back and said, since you're the one who needs the money, you send me the $1,000 and then the Lord will give you the $10,000. So that's not your motive for giving. But I want to tell you something, folks. When you give because of your love for God, your supreme love, more than your job, more than any Isaac in your life, the principle is the Lord will return with the same measure you use. It will be measured back to you. Our God is a bountiful God. Four times he uses the word gamal the Hebrew word for bountiful. The Lord hath dealt bountifully with us. Bountifully. Bountifully. He has given exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Our God is a bountiful God. He wants us to live in bounty. Too many of us don't stay the giving course, so we never understand the blessedness of nothingness. Because there's an Isaac in our life. It's a payment on a new car. I can't afford to give. A car payment is $575 a month. 
I can't afford to give. I got five credit cards all maxed out. Man, if I took all the credit lines sent to me, I'd get $25,000 a week in fresh new credit cards, all with a low interest rate. I could have them and nobody would know. I could run. Listen, I feel for some of you young people when you're pressed and you got all this easy credit. It's pre-approved. Send it in. We'll give you a leather bag. Just send it in. Have your credit. Remember, you've always got to pay it back. Don't be in bondage to those things. Oh, the blessedness of nothingness. What are your Isaacs which you need to give to the Lord? Now, I want to leave you with one caution. God doesn't always give you a substitute like the ram in the thicket. Sometimes he really does want Isaac. But if he ever takes your Isaac, he will give you something or someone back that is far greater, far richer, far fuller, and a far more bountiful blessing. I learned that lesson when I was in Bible college many years ago. And a college, my theology professor had a daughter who was nine. Her name was Peggy. She was a tomboy playing softball with her brothers out in the backyard in Florida. The ball went down a hole and she reached down that gopher hole for the ball and a rattlesnake bit her. And all night long, her life weighed in the balance because they didn't know what had bit her. And Dr. Bragg said, I prayed all night. Oh, God, save her life. Save her life. And about 9 o'clock in the morning, we were praying with him. And he said, Lord, if you want her life, take her, my only daughter's life. Take her. And once he had given her up to the Lord, the Lord spared her life. An hour and a half later, the doctor said her life turned. And things began to change. And she was spared. And then a week later, the doctor said, we think she's going to lose the arm. We'll have to amputate the arm. He thought, oh, no, I can't let this nine-year-old girl go through life without an arm. But he finally came to the place where he said, Lord, if you want her arm, take her arm. I don't want that arm to stand between you and me. And he thought, well, I gave the Lord her life, and he, gave, he let her have life. Now I'll give, her, give the Lord her arm, and the Lord will save her arm. But God didn't spare the arm that time. He took the arm. And that girl, such an athlete, powerful swimmer, competitive swimmer, lost an arm. Was that bad? God had his own purposes to accomplish. That girl with one arm went to Africa as a missionary with one arm. God used that arm to open up doors with Africans. And in a 20-year ministry in the heart of Africa, Peggy Bragg probably founded more than 25 churches. And those churches remain a legacy to a girl surrendered to God 
whose life was spared, but whose arm was taken when her father gave up his Isaac, his Peggy. So it really boils down to nothingness. Are you willing to stand naked before God with nothing between you and him and say, oh God, how blessed it is to be possessed of nothing or no one? Who's your Isaac? Is it a relationship that you're in? Is it a job that has got you in bondage? Is it a credit card in which your trust rests? Take it to God and lay it on the altar and then know what it means to be free. The blessedness of having nothing but God. To love, to trust, to hope in, to fear and reverence. Amen. Amen. Holy Father, shave our hearts to size. If there's anybody here who's let anything come between them and salvation in Jesus Christ, help them to give it up. Give it up. Give up that person, that relationship, that idea, and flee to the cross where Christ gave everything for our salvation so that we could be forgiven and cleansed. And teach every one of us as believers how blessed it is to have nothing between us and thee, the blessedness of nothingness in Jesus' name. Amen.